Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Parson and Michael Baranowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. If you haven't signed up for the Politics Guys newsletter, you should check it out. This week's edition features my recommendations on the best Trump tracker sites and tools, Zach's links on the new normal of environmental collapse, a guaranteed basic income, and the U.S. as a flawed democracy, and Joe, who's got a lot to say about elites, anti-Trumpers, polls, and much more. To get the newsletter, just go to our website, politicsguys.com, and sign up on the form you'll see there. You can also check out previous issues by clicking on the Patched Newsletters link above the sign-up form. Now, today on the show, we're doing something very different, uh, a host swap with our friends Sarah and Beth at Pantsuit Politics. Like us, they feature a conservative and a liberal who actually discuss political news in a civil and respectful way instead of yelling past each other like so many filter-bubbled ideologues do. Uh, Today, I'll be doing the show with Beth, the resident conservative at Pantsuit Politics, and over at Pantsuit Politics, Jay will be talking to Sarah, my liberal counterpart. To hear Sarah and Jay and to check out all the other great stuff on Pantsuit Politics, go to pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. You can also find them on iTunes and Stitcher. And now, on to the show. Hi, Beth. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. You know, I thought we'd start today by talking about something conservatives have been savoring and liberals have really been dreading since November 9th, and that's, of course, President Trump's Supreme Court pick. Um, As promised, right, the president chose a true blue conservative, Neil Gorsuch, who's a well-respected 49-year-old federal appeals court judge who, you know, many believe is really the intellectual heir to Justice Scalia, whose seat he'll be taking if the Senate confirms the nomination. So what did you think about the pick? I I think it's a great pick. I I think it's a little bit misleading to compare him so directly to Scalia. I keep seeing the graphic of sort of the liberal to conservative spectrum on justices. I don't find that particularly helpful because I think judicial conservatism is different than political conservatism. What I think is so encouraging about this pick that that could be encouraging to people across the political spectrum is that he seems to be someone who very firmly believes in the separation of powers and could be quite an effective check on the executive branch. Yeah, you know, that's something that I that I thought was encouraging as well. And uh, uh, I have to wonder, I think, you know, Donald Trump perhaps outsourced some of his selection process for this to uh, some conservative groups who maybe are a lot more interested in checking executive power than Donald Trump might actually be. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of surprising in that way, right? But but you definitely don't see this as a pick who's going to be a blank check on the Trump agenda. Right. So, and as of course coming from the left, that's about the only good thing that I can that I can find in the pick. I mean, I I, I sort of expected this would have expected this sort of pick from any uh, Republican president. And uh, uh, all things considered, I guess I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I'm disappointed, obviously, but I'm not outraged. Uh, I certainly think he's, he's qualified. Uh, It, it kind of bums me out that he's so young, but I get that. I mean, you want someone who's going to be in there if you're President Trump for, for decades and decades. Um, 
But I think the thing that really has me concerned is I, I'm looking at the ages of the other justices, uh, Justice Breyer, 78, Justice Kennedy's 80, Justice Ginsburg, nearly 84. And I'm thinking President Trump could have two, maybe three more picks even. I think that's right. And Justice Thomas has openly commented on retiring at some point. So it does look like a court that is that is not for the long term. And especially viewed in that context, I think this is a good choice. Now, now I'll be forthright and say that I think that the Republicans in Congress really abdicated their responsibilities with respect to the Merrick Garland choice. Mm -hmm. So I fully understand the sense that this is I think it's dramatic to call it a stolen seat. But but I get that. And I think Merrick Garland was a qualified choice. And if I had been in the Senate, I would have voted to confirm Merrick Garland. I mean, I think this is, to me, what advice and consent means is not, here's what I would do if I were you. It's, is this a qualified choice? And and I think that's true about, I think that's true about this nominee. I think it was true about Judge Garland as well. You know, I think that's a, that's a great point. And I think too many people don't, Unfortunately, in my view, don't don't share that position in that I, I really feel that, you know, elections have consequences and it's not enough to say, well, I'm opposing this or I won't vote for this nominee because I don't agree with this person on policy. My view and the tradition, as I'm sure you know, is that is that if somebody, as long as somebody is not manifestly unqualified or corrupt, the president essentially gets to gets to choose his people because he won the election. And I and I, it really saddens me to see that norm going away. I agree with that, especially because, as I said, you know what it means to be judicially conservative. We sort of try to boil that down to a couple of hot button issues. There are good things in that, though. I mean, I think of a a judicial conservative as someone who is constantly thinking, I am not a legislator. Right. Right. My job is not to make law as much as I can do that, given the cases before me. And we only know about the court what makes its way into published opinions But there are so many decisions that as a public, we don't get any visibility on what cases they even decide to hear at the Supreme Court. You know, there's so much strategy and um, judicial philosophy happening that we don't have any visibility on. So I I think that we do ourselves and the court a disservice by the way we analyze these things. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I couldn't agree more. And I I tend to be temperamentally sort of uh, in agreement with that view of judicial judicial restraint. I think there's something very important to be to be said for that, you know. And the other point that you mentioned that I wanted to comment on is that the some Democrats talking about a stolen seat. And, and and like you, I certainly can understand where that comes from. And I think that that uh, Judge Garland should have at least gotten a hearing, even if just to be rejected. But, you know, I think one thing that, that I would hope everyone has learned from the Trump presidency is we don't want to just carelessly toss out words. Uh, words have, you know, meanings. And, and, and so, Calling something stolen, that's that's a very powerful, you know, claim to make. And I don't think we should just toss that around lightly. And it really sort of disappoints me that that my party, who are so, you know, criticizing President Trump for his careless use of inflammatory words, some members of my party are doing exactly the same thing. And I don't think that's the approach that that I want to see my party taking or, or, you know, any party taking, really. 
Yeah, it's sort of at what point is imitation endorsement? Yeah. And and that's where I feel when I watch the discussions about, well, Democrats should hold this nominee up forever. I think, well, if you hated what the Republicans did, and I do as a Republican, and and that choice has consequences in the way I will vote, particularly because Mitch McConnell is my senator. And, and I feel very strongly that under his leadership, Republicans shirked a, a constitutional duty. Right. So that has consequences to me, too. But I don't think saying, so now we're going to do the same thing makes any sense at all. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. You know, one other thing I wanted to uh, get into is, of course, President Trump has suggested that if Democrats are going to uh, delay or try to filibuster the, the nomination, that the uh, the Republicans in the Senate should go nuclear, as the saying has it, and actually eliminate the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. What do you think about that? I think the fact that we're talking so much about uh, procedural tactics shows how much we've lost our way. <laughs> I mean, oh, this is good point. Uh, this is such a sad situation to be in. My feeling is, I, I received a survey from the um, the RNC asking questions about the Trump administration, and I posted it on our Facebook page. But there was a question that said, "Should." Congressional Republicans do everything necessary to make sure that the Trump administration gets its choices in cabinet and Supreme Court seats. And and then there was just a yes and no bubble. And I wrote in, please just follow regular rules of order. Yeah. That's what everybody should do here. The the changing rule tactics, this is what people claim to hate about Washington, DC. And I think a good reason that some people voted for Donald Trump, right? They're just tired of all of this. Now, I I don't think that ignoring all of those rules is, right. is the way to go either, which seems to be his preference. But I think for Republicans to, to take that nuclear option, there is not a worse PR message at this point. Just to do something associated with the word nuclear yeah, right now. Right. Uh-huh. It seems like an obviously bad idea. But also, we need a new tone to be set here of, of people working together and doing things appropriately. The rule of law is critically important, Amen. more so than it's ever been. So I would hate to see any rule shifting around this nomination. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I certainly agree. And one thing, you know, one thing I will, I've always said in, in favor of, of Senator McConnell, who on, on policy issues I disagree with uh, uh, all, all the time, is that he does seem to really respect the rules and the traditions of the Senate. And I think he's going to resist any urge to, uh, to, to do away with the filibuster. At least that's, that, that's my sense of, of, of Senator McConnell, who I don't agree with, but I think is, uh, is a generally honorable guy who cares about these traditions and and the regular order. So what's your thought about how Senate Democrats ought to react right now? Well, I I think, I I certainly think that, that they should be expressing their concern with, uh, with Judge Gorsuch's, uh, you know, the way he interprets the Constitution, because even though I'm sympathetic to it, I know there are a number of people who say that, that you know, who are more in favor of a more activist stance and who, and, and this gets in right into a whole other issue of what does it mean for something to be constitutional or unconstitutional? And it seems like to me that for so many people, constitutional means stuff I like and unconstitutional means stuff I don't like. You know, and that drives right. me, that drives me nuts. And so, you know, I, I feel personally as a, as a Democrat that while I disagree with, I think, some of the conclusions that 
uh, Judge Gorsuch has reached in the past. I think that his method for reaching them is legitimate and reasonable people can have, you know, can disagree about that. So I, I think, I guess it's difficult for me, for me to say putting myself in that position. I think I would have to actually vote for his, uh, I would have to vote to approve him and that would make me a pariah in my party. But I believe in the principle of, of you know, as long as he's not unqualified or corrupt uh, and he, you know, has, he certainly is a very well-qualified and well-respected guy. I mean, he was confirmed uh, unanimously uh, in his, in his previous confirmation hearing. I, I couldn't let my politics trump my principles on this. Uh, I don't, I mean, I think he'll get you know, unified opposition among Democrats because that's not the world we live in anymore. But, you know, as recently as the 1980s, well, for me, I'm old, but as recently as the 1980s, that was the world we lived in, even with Supreme Court nominees. But, of course, that's not where we're at now, unfortunately. No, I really respect that, though. I think that's the right analysis. And I think for people of all parties, a, a fully staffed court is important. Yes. Especially if you think about the types of cases that will make their way to the court this term. So I, I hope that this gets done. One thing I do want to say, though, I don't like the tone of discussion from my party that we're sort of expected and entitled to seat someone just like Scalia because it's a Scalia vacancy. Certainly, if Justice Ginsburg were to retire during Trump's term, which I know she will not (laughs) do, respect that as well. But I don't think um, anyone in the Republican Party would be saying, well, he has to appoint someone philosophically right. aligned with Justice Ginsburg. I, I, that's just a stupid argument. <laughs> yeah, I, I think yeah. we ought to take it off the table. Yeah, definitely. I absolutely agree with that. You know, there, there, there's been so much else going on this week. Of course, that the the Supreme Court uh, nominee was the one big story. But the other big story, my gosh, there's, it's been so much going on with this. And let me see if I can kind of summarize everything. It's, it's a lot. But right to this point, Donald Trump has issued 20 executive orders as of today. And certainly the most controversial one has been his executive order on immigration, which included that 120 day suspension uh, from those uh, and sorry, the 90 day suspension from those seven predominantly Muslim countries. And, you know, some people say that that was issued without Adequate consideration, adequate coordination of the agencies involved. There was obviously a huge backlash from liberals and some conservatives, some of our allies, many in the business community. And more recently, right on Friday, there was a federal judge in Washington state who issued uh, an order blocking the ban from being enforced nationwide. The White House uh, appealed this. And uh, then on just yesterday, in fact, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals denied the administration's emergency request to reinstate the ban. So uh, what do you make of all this? <laughs> it's hard to even know where to start. Yeah, no I- kidding. I'll tell you, <laughs> so my... I, I find the executive order itself bad in terms of both substance and form. I think that the refugee program is probably the part of our immigration system that works the best right now. I think Trump talks about refugees as though they wake up one day and decide, hey, I'd like to come to the United States and hop on a plane and are here. Right. And that's certainly not the reality. So I think that I just disagree substantively. I understand the concerns that he's trying to address. I can't find a nexus between those concerns and the action that he's taken. Yeah. You know, you what know, concerns. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, you know, I think that that's that's a really good point I, in that I think a lot of people 
seem to assume that how the process works is that people can just come into the country. And there actually is a pretty, uh, I hate to use the word, extreme vetting already in place, but that doesn't really get reported a whole lot, it seems to me. No, I think it would be good to have some some really mainstream journalism following the journey of refugees into this country to show people what's really happening because it, it is an extensive process. So I I don't think that that is connected directly to terrorism the way that the Trump administration tries to paint that connection, and that concerns me. I'll tell you, though, what has concerned me even more the past couple of days is Trump's personal response to judicial involvement here. The tweet about the so-called judge. Yeah, my gosh. Um, that language unnerves me. Yeah. Yeah, that but but you know, it seems to me to be part of a a larger a larger trend where where President Trump has no problem questioning the the very legitimacy of anyone who disagrees with him and 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 that to me is you know is obviously very troubling yet he reacts so forcefully to anyone questioning his own legitimacy yeah it's it's the hypocrisy in that that is is so frustrating but to have the administration openly questioning it, it seems to me the power of a federal district judge to stay enforcement, I I don't know where we go from here if we don't see the administration toning down that kind of language and certainly complying with those orders. Right. Yeah, I can't imagine even if President Trump, uh, and this is, well, I never thought I'd be saying this, even if President Trump ignored the order entirely, which I, I don't think, I don't think he'll do, I think that there are too many people under President Trump in the executive branch who would not go along with that. And then that would just be a, a dramatic loss of legitimacy and authority and, and hugely embarrassing for the president. And that's the last thing that he wants is to have his, you know, have his authority questioned so early on. So I think they will go along and there'll be a lot more angry tweets, I'm, I'm assuming. The entire rollout of this policy has been that way, though. The It's just been embarrassing, the lack of coordination, the lack of vetting of the policy, right? The, yeah. the stories about um, General Mattis, for example, not having been adequately consulted. I mean, there, there's just a lot that I hope this is a good lesson learned kind of moment yeah. for the, the Trump administration because this was a mess. Yeah, and this is the thing that's not, not a partisan point at all. It's that when you roll out a big nationwide policy like this, it takes a lot of coordination and a lot of planning. And, you know, clearly that wasn't done. It made me think about back to the rollout of, of Obamacare, uh, maybe, exactly. you know. And so it seems to me one thing that people, you know, they like the idea that Donald Trump is a, is an outsider and, and isn't tied in with this whole establishment. But there's sometimes something to be said for administrative, governmental administrative experience in doing these things, you know. Well, and also that the government, the federal government is supposed to move slowly by design. It is supposed to move slowly at the federal level because our whole country was founded on the the danger of a tyrannical king. Right. Right. Uh-huh. So, you know, I, I think that I understand that he wants to come in and get things done, but but he is in a place now where getting things done could mean a year from now we have immigration reform. That would be a great result. That's the kind of result that our that our process intends, I think. Not this kind of quick, I'm going to sign a piece of paper and, and let it be done. Yeah. What did you think of Sally Yates? Well, you know, I, I, 
I know that there were a lot of of my fellow liberals who were uh, upset about that, but I I honestly think that that I think the media made more of it than than what it was. I mean, uh, she was an Obama appointee. She openly defied the president, and I certainly respect her for you know uh, standing up and and you know kind of acting based on the dictates of her conscience. But there there's a you know, there is a price to be paid for that, and she paid that price. So I think President Trump was well within his rights to do that, and I I didn't have a problem with it. I certainly agreed with her viewpoint, but I don't I don't find anything to be outraged with there, honestly. What I thought was so difficult about the situation, it, it, you know, so on Twitter she was like immediately canonized, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but when I read her statement. I thought that she said too much from her post. You know, mm-hmm. her statement read to me less like the statement of someone who, as a lawyer, could not in good faith defend the policy and more like as a person she could not in right. good faith defend the policy. I was sitting in in my bedroom, you know, watching all this happen online and thinking, well, on the one hand, you serve at the pleasure of the president. On the other hand, as a lawyer, when you sign a pleading, you are attesting that in good faith you believe you have a reasonable argument. Right. And if she can't do that, I totally respect that. And and I think there is a valid point there. Now, I know people will disagree with me, but that's the nature of constitutional law. We can disagree about those uh-huh. things all sure. day and nobody be completely wrong. But But when I read her statement, I felt like it would have been a better move for her to have simply resigned. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think – well, I think you could certainly – I would say she – yeah, I agree with you. She said a little bit too much and – but, you know, part of this is this whole kind of media complex of of the creation of outrage and it just right. gets – it gets so tiring and I get why they do it. You know, they they, they do it to, to, to sell sell papers. Jesus, I'm like an old guy. But to get clicks and viewers and so forth. But it, it really is, is is unfortunate and leads us down a bad, a bad path. And uh, so I really think the media made a lot more of this than, than really there should have been made. Well, especially when you look at that Monday Night Massacre mm-hmm. kind of hashtagging. Yeah. You know, the people who recall the Nixon situation are not – are not hashtaggers, no. right? Like, <laughs> no. it, it, it was kind of uh, a historical reference that was used only because it was so inflammatory. Yeah, exactly. And that bugs me. Yeah, that bug, bugs me too, of course. And that's, you know, that's sort of what I think both of our, you know, both of our podcasts, we try to get past that and avoid that. And, and you know, and that kind of thing that we see in the media all the time, unfortunately. Exactly. Before we get to our next story, I'd like to thank our new supporters this week. First is Kathy from Charleston, Illinois. Kathy is our latest monthly supporter through Patreon. She says, thank you for keeping the torch burning on the podcast. And thank you, Kathy, for your support. Next, we have Matt from Fort Worth, Texas. Matt's also a monthly Patreon supporter of the show. And he says, thank you so very much for the thoughtful, respectful conversations that you have. I find myself looking forward to my commute to school on Monday mornings and disappointed as the episode concludes. In this political environment, civility is certainly a breath of fresh air. I'm hoping, out of the work you guys do, our politics will return to reason and perhaps a new political center will rise. Thanks again and keep up the good work. That is a great hope, Matt, and I I certainly share that hope and I know Jay does too. Uh, Next, we have Melinda from California. Melinda writes, I'm a longtime listener of your podcast and now I've subscribed to the newsletter too. 
I'm very grateful for this podcast and especially the way you two agree to disagree and swiftly and professionally move on to the next subject. I decided to donate after last week's podcast when you two discussed the fear and panic that is sweeping the country in the wake of the Trump presidency. Jay spoke calmly about his lack of fear and lack of understanding of why people are afraid. I began screaming because I found it unbelievable that he could not see that his race and socioeconomic status placed him in a position of privilege. I was incensed. Then you spoke, and I was so happy to hear you talk about the way his presidency may affect white middle-class men in a different way than it affects women, poor people, and people of color. As a college-educated woman of color, I am constantly aghast by Trump's actions and recent executive orders. In fact, I am afraid. But I am so happy to know that you are hosting a show that shares two equally important points of view and encourages discourse and respect. Though I seldom agree with Jay, I know how important it is to hear his point of view. Thank you very much for that, Melinda. That that meant a lot. Um, And finally, I'd like to thank two generous supporters uh, from... PayPal, sorry, uh, Mike from Higginum, Connecticut, and Shelly, who I do not know where you are from, Shelly, but wherever you're from, thank you so much. Your support means a great deal to us. Now, if you're interested in supporting the show financially, you can do what all our great supporters from last week did. Just go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or PayPal donation links you'll see there. Every donation really does help no matter what the amount is, whether it's a couple bucks or, you know, we've had people give a hundred dollars and wow. Um, we are truly grateful for whatever you can do to help. And I also want to mention it's especially helpful for us to have continuing monthly supporters, something you can set up easily in Patreon or PayPal. Uh, regular monthly donations are, are important because they help make it easier for us to know what to expect as we continue to move forward and try to expand the show. And of course, if you ever need to cancel an automatic monthly contribution, oh gosh, I hope you wouldn't, but if you do, it's simple to do. And finally, as always, it would be a big help if you could spread the word about the show by sharing and retweeting our new show posts on Facebook and Twitter and leaving reviews and ratings of the show on iTunes. Now, on to our next story. So, um, you know, moving on, there there are other things that happened, so much that happened, actually. Of course, the Senate, right, has been a really busy place. It's it's only been, isn't it hard to believe that it's only been just over two weeks since the inauguration? It seems like, <laughs> my God, it seems like forever. But, you know, of course, one of the Senate's constitutionally mandated roles is confirming the president's nominees for those top executive branch positions. And so far, they've approved six of them, and the latest one being former Exxon CEO Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State. And this was on a largely party-line vote, 56 to 43. And according to the Senate Historical Office, it was the closest vote ever for a Secretary of State nominee. Uh, Why do you think it was so close? This is just such a tough one. I think that when I think about the statements that I've heard Richard Haas make several times about how President Trump has the hardest foreign policy inbox of of any president in recent memory. Mm -hmm. You know, the role of Secretary of State is just critically important. And so you have here such a weird resume that I think would give people pause in a normal environment. Even when we didn't have these questions about Russia, I think in a normal environment, Rex Tillerson's resume for the Secretary of State post would be such a head scratcher. Is this... Certainly, it's foreign policy experience. Is it foreign policy experience in the way that we mean, in the way that we want in our government? And there's such hard questions there made 
triply hard by the relationship with Russia and and the fact that he acquired all this experience as an oil executive instead of something else that we all find a little bit less um, ominous or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. This is just a hard one. I mean, at the end of the day, I think he is well-spoken. I think he has skills that appear to be diplomatic. All in all, again, when I go back to what does advice and consent mean, I think I would have voted for his confirmation with some reluctance. But the the process for this one was really, really tricky. Yeah. You know, I think this really is an interesting uh, contrast. You know, I said in terms of Judge Gorsuch, I think I would – have to vote uh, to confirm if I were in that position, but here I, I think I could almost make a case for along the you know along the grounds that you suggested as a as as a liberal for 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 not confirming. I have I, I think it's reasonable to have uh, serious concerns about his lack of experience. That's something we can't say for George Gorsuch uh, and his background ties to Russia that sort of thing. So here's a case where I think reasonable people can say you know given how difficult our and how challenging our foreign policy environment is, this is not the person I think who is qualified to to lead the foreign policy establishment and somebody who just doesn't have the experience we want at such a such a dangerous time with so much going on. So I actually uh, I actually support the the Democrats who who voted no on this. I think that's a reasonable position. And so you wonder about Trump's management style in this scenario because I can see in a corporate context making the decision that you want your people and everybody will just get right with that. Mm-hmm. In this context, especially with this position, it would very much trouble me to have the closest vote ever to confirm the Secretary of State, given what we have going on in the world. Yeah, I would really want everyone on the same page about my nominee. And if that weren't going to happen, I think I would have been spending some time not trying to whip votes, but but saying, hey, who could we all get behind? Because we really all need to be together as it relates to America and the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, this is not a president who thinks that way. I, I don't think. You know, who, who can we all get behind? I think it's well, get behind my guy. It's my way right. or the highway, and that I think there are going to be an awful lot of challenges in foreign policy, and that's the sort of you know, uh, that's the sort of approach I think that he is going to find is not going to give us the results that we all want. And there's a balance to be had here. Sure. So there's, you know, leadership is important and strong leadership is important. And some of the problem with our foreign policy for the past 10, 15, 20 <laughs> years has been not having the right balance. Too, too yeah. much get behind me or you're, you know, un-American versus, no, we all need to be on the same page or we're not going to do much of anything. I mean, we do need to find the right mix of those things. I'm just afraid that yeah. Trump is the pendulum swinging way back beyond the Bush years, right? Yeah. Um, instead of finding that middle ground. No, I think that's a great analogy because for me, it seems like we went way far in the, the in one direction under President Bush. And I think President Obama overcorrected uh, and yes. now we're getting another overcorrection. I I sort of yearn for the days of uh, President George H.W. Bush's foreign policy, which I thought was a nice kind of balance. But uh, unfortunately, that's <laughs> that's not going to happen. But, you know, I also wanted to mention one other 
big confirmation fight we're likely to see in the near future. Uh, you know, for a position that's considered generally one of the least powerful ones, and that's Secretary of Education. President Trump's nominee, Betsy DeVos, she's drawn considerable fire for uh, her questionable knowledge of education policy and even more so for her support of for-profit charter schools. And at this point, two Republican senators, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska and Susan Collins from Maine, have said that they'll actually vote against her. And of course, with the Republicans having only that two-seat advantage, that opens up the possibility for a tie vote, in which case Vice President Mike Pence, who is also president of the Senate, gets to vote to uh, break that tie for DeVos's confirmation. But if Senate Democrats can convince one more Republican to side with them, they'll be able to ha- you know, give Donald Trump a pretty stinging defeat. Uh, do you think that's going to happen? I, I don't think so. I think she will be confirmed. But this is another one where I think that this is a, a strange fight to pick. You know, it, how embarrassing this has been for the administration. I was relatively pleased with her nomination at the beginning because I do think some disruptive thinking about education is in order. I don't think that charter schools and scholarship tax credits and all of the sort of school choice type Uh, policies are at odds or have to be at odds with public education. I think we've set up a false binary on this topic, not to derail us too much because I know that's like a rabbit hole. But so I and, and also given the fact that the Federal Department of Education, in my mind as a conservative, should have a fairly limited role, I was not troubled by her nomination until her disastrous confirmation hearing where I do think it came across as if she is just manifestly unqualified to serve in this post. So I really respect Senator Murkowski and Senator Collins on this, and and I hope some of their colleagues will follow, but I doubt they will. I think that it probably will be a tie, and Mike Pence will uh, vote in her favor, and and she'll be confirmed. What yeah, do you think? That's that's exactly my uh, my prediction. I don't see where that where that one additional vote comes from, and uh, you know along along the same lines, I do think that you know we should. Perhaps my party has been too enthralled to the uh, to the teachers unions, and they've been loyal supporters for a long time. But I, I think really, there we should at least consider some changes to, to education policy. And uh, this is one of these issues where I, I wish my party could be a little more flexible on that. But there, like you said, there's a that's a big rabbit hole to go down. Uh, having said that, I don't think she's the person for the job, and. Again, this is sort of a larger trend I see with all of well, – not all, but with many of President Trump's nominees. He wanted to pick people from outside the establishment. But it's hard, I think, sometimes to find people who are, uh, I will say, sane and experienced and, and who are qualified to lead some of these agencies. I won't even talk about Ben Carson as a cabinet secretary. It's a whole other story. But that – that to me is very is very troubling, and uh, again, I think this is an administration that's really setting itself up to fail because there are so many people who just don't really seem to have the skills, at least in my view, to lead to successfully lead the agencies they're going to be leading. It's almost like he thinks that the way to win a chess game is just to pick up the board and throw the pieces <laughs> everywhere, yeah, uh-huh. in- instead of carefully moving one piece at a time. I think there is a role for people outside of government to come in and do some very good work within the government. 
But that doesn't mean that everything about the government is inherently wrong. It's almost like that's the framework we're operating under. It's not that we've kind of gotten bogged down or that we've given the wrong interest to our politicians or that people have been there too long. It's the the assumption of the Trump team seems to be, no, everything about it is inherently bad. And so disruption is good always. Yeah. Yeah, and and certainly there's a role for like you said, but I I, I feel that the, the president has taken it too far, uh, way too far, in, in my view at this point. You know, I, this isn't. I mean, President Trump has been an awfully awfully busy guy, um, and uh, in addition to executive orders and calling judges, so-called judges, and so forth, uh, you know, he made a he made a vow to, in his word, destroy the law that bans political endorsements by churches. And uh, to me, this was this was a big deal. It really caught my attention. I don't know that it had got in, in everything else that happened. I don't know that it got exactly the coverage that I would have liked to have seen, but that just, I was really just taken aback by that. Uh, I was wondering what you thought about it. I just don't, I don't know if he understands his role. And I don't mean to be insulting no, or no. disrespectful, but I, I don't know that he understands the role of the executive branch in our system of government. I, substance aside, the president talking about destroying a law, I, I don't get it. Yeah. I, it's not conservative. This is what bothers me, right? Like as a conservative for me, the rule of law and the process is often more important than the result because that the process is what is enduring and what keeps everything in check. And so him saying things like this, I just, it, it makes me very nervous. Yeah, yeah, I certainly, I mean, and there's there's obviously a, a tension here that a lot of people have pointed out between between the First Amendment, uh, you know, freedom of speech, and then the, and then the uh, uh, free exercise clause or establish, sorry, establishment of religion and so forth. And so I, I, I get, I get why people, you know, point out that tension, but it just seems to me that this is just a, a this has been something that has been a settled policy for a long time. In fact, a lot of the a lot of the pastors and religious leaders actually like having this in place, so they don't feel forced to 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 take this political this you know often divisive political role. And and to me, this is a very good thing. And it's just another example of the president, like you said, maybe not understanding his role or just kind of just shooting you know off shooting from the hip, being off the cuff, and saying things that are, are you know I think fairly dangerous things to say. Well, it's a good point. Like rushing past the clear constitutional boundaries that he doesn't seem to understand, just going to the substance of it as a as a conservative and as a person of faith, I, I think this is bad policy. I, I think that we ought to I think religious institutions are very important to our society. I do not think that means that we need to give them special treatment under the law. I question a lot of the tax exemptions for religious institutions. I I think that we ought to take a hard look at that. So I would probably take us in the opposite direction. And, and I, I just, I don't know that I don't see any good coming of this. Yeah. Me, me either. That's certainly, you know, um, also, I wanted to mention that Donald Trump uh, uh, promulgated an ex- sorry an executive order, a big executive order on federal regulations, saying that for every one new federal regulation an agency promulgates, two have to be taken off the books. And you know, it seems to me that as a as an as a basic kind of concept i get what he's i get what he's doing and actually and this may be su- surprising coming from from a liberal i think that 
we probably are in certain aspects overregulated. And so I think we do need to take a hard look at it. But once again, I'm sort of troubled by the way the president has approached this. I, what, what are your thoughts on this? I think I agree exactly with what you said. I certainly think we're overregulated. I think that our regulations are far too complex. I think we do a lot of well-meaning regulations that are completely divorced from their impact and that we do need a very comprehensive look in most of our agencies at the regulations that are out there. This feels like a really intellectually lazy way to get there and kind of a reckless path forward. And something that doesn't need to be done by action or order. I think this is more getting the right cabinet officials in place and then giving them a directive to go through the laborious, meticulous, painful process of reviewing their agencies one step at a time. And that's a years long endeavor. Yeah. But that's what is in order. I think this is a recipe to get some really screwy, incoherent regulations happening. You yeah, know, I mean, it, it, again, it shows he doesn't he's not a lawyer, right? He hasn't ever had to sift through regulations like this. I mean, he could have kind of rogue people in these bureaucracies really turning the laws into nonsense in order to follow this dictate. Yeah, I mean, you could, you know, some people have pointed out if if you consider it just a numbers game you could you could put in place a regulation that's horribly uh, oppressive on people that cost billions of dollars but as long as you take away two tiny little insignificant regulations you are complying with the letter of this and that's obviously not the intent the problem i would argue isn't that we have too many regulations the problem is the type of regulations that we occasionally have that are you know that that actually hinder more than more than help us and and, and like you said you can't just you can't just you know, make this a numbers game. And, and this sort of approach is going to almost certainly be be counterproductive. I mean, what do you do? Do you start lifting out regulations that are just definitional? Yeah. Right. You want to keep mm-hmm. your substantive regulation in and you say, well, I've got to delete too. So I'm going to take out the terms. I mean, it, there's a world in which this could lead to uh, a lot more judicial review of, yeah. of regulations. I mean, I, I just I think it's the right spirit. Certainly, I think it's the right spirit. I just think again, it's the wrong execution. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we we've talked about foreign policy already uh, earlier in the show, and of course, I have to mention his uh, President Trump's uh, somewhat rocky phone call with the Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull earlier in the week, and 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 once again, it just kind of brought home for me. The, the the understanding that this is a this is someone who uh, certainly has not been schooled in the in the niceties of diplomatic language who who uh, uh, I think is you know setting up uh, uh, setting up a, a situation where we're going to have a hard time getting along with some of our allies. Uh, I don't know. Did did you think this was a the media making too much of one phone call, or do you see this as part of something bigger? As I seem to. Well. One thing that I see it as part of something bigger is that he is for real about how he feels about immigration. Oh, yeah. The the fact that he would kind of go to the mat with Australia over a refugee program tells you that that something for him is completely fixated on on immigrants and particularly refugees coming into our country. And then when he tweeted about the, you know, ridiculous Obama policy allowing illegal immigrants from Australia coming in, 
I thought, well, you know, first, these aren't illegal immigrants. They're refugees, and it's not illegal if we've told them to come right, here. Right. And, you know, so what is it about – what is it in his life that has made this such a hot button for him? Because we know with Trump that everything is personal. Uh, what has made this so personal for him? I also think that he probably just has not had the humbling experience yet of something on a global scale – showing him how important our alliances are, that he's so flippant about Australia. He's so flippant about NATO. And I I don't want that humbling event to take place, but it surely will. And I hope he is humbled by it when it does and that we haven't burned too many bridges before then. Absolutely. And, you know, the thing about Australia that that really I think is unfortunate is Donald Trump is supposedly deeply concerned about China. And yet Australia is sort of uh, drifting into China's orbit, I think. And it's, you know, it's partly a geographic sort of thing. They have a lot of trade with China and so forth. But they've been our staunch allies for over a century now. And uh, just doing anything to endanger such an important relationship. And it kind of goes into my feelings about the the TPP, whereas, you know, uh, he sees it in strictly trade terms i mean I, I see it as kind of a bulwark against against china and of course china was one of the was was very happy to see that we pulled out of that and if if the president is really concerned about china's influence and what china is doing on the world stage it seems to me that he's engaging in some policies and some actions that are really counterproductive i think that's right it's almost like he views trade as as though it's in a bucket that is completely distinct from foreign policy yes. And I don't I don't understand that it's apparent to I think it's apparent to everyone that the TPP was very much about relations in that part of the world as much as it was about anything economic. Yeah. You know, in in other foreign policy developments. So here's one thing that actually I I don't say this very often, but there there at least is one area in which I I sort of find myself uh, heartened, somewhat encouraged. And that's the statement earlier this week that uh, the administration suggested that maybe Israel should chill out a little bit on all the new settlements in the West Bank. And, And of course, this has been a contentious issue for a long time. And these are settlements that Almost the entire international community has big problems with, in fact, is called illegal. And uh, initially, it seemed like the Trump administration was going to be kind of gung-ho in favor of settlements in the West Bank. And now they seem to be pulling back a little bit for that. I see that as a sign of, uh, of caution, maturity, progress. Uh, what do you think about it? It was actually a pretty respectable statement on this topic. Yeah. If if you look at it through the lens of what he has said he wants, which is to facilitate an agreement, right? And so I think that he somewhat wisely in this most recent statement said, look, it's not that we think all settlements are a problem, but we think this activity is a problem. I mean, that's that's pretty nuanced and complex for this administration. You know? <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And it does seem to indicate to me that they're serious about wanting to try to bring everyone to the table here. Now, they're a long way from that. And I think that books will be written about Trump's relationship with Netanyahu when it's all said and done, Mm. because what personalities you have going with those two. And that's the, the 
kind of scary thing for me is, you know, Netanyahu is not one to blink prematurely. So I don't think that Trump can control him as much as he might think that he can. But this did seem to me to be sort of a, hey, don't take advantage of my friendship kind yeah, of move. Absolutely. And so, you know, one other thing, and we're, we're, starting to run a little bit long here, but I wanted to end on what I feel is a legitimately positive Trump administration note. Again, something I don't say too often, but there was an announcement this last week that the Trump administration would leave in place that uh, 2014 uh, Obama executive order that created protections for LGBTQ workers. And uh, I say I was pleased to hear that. I wasn't all that surprised because I always felt that at least on social issues, President Trump is is kind of a he's not really a traditional conservative. He seems to be much more liberal on these issues. And so that doesn't really surprise me. But I was I was pleased to see it. Certainly. This is for me one of the only hopeful things about President Trump emerging as the Republican nominee and ultimately being the president. I think if he could help the party shake loose this history of social conservatism, that would be a helpful thing. And I I hope that the party can kind of move in that direction because we're certainly on the wrong side of history. I know that people received the news of this of this action pretty cynically and saw it as he just wants something good in the news cycle. He wants some praise. It's an ego move or a delay tactic or a shiny object, whatever. You know, I'll take it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll take it. I'll take any good news right now. And and I also think once he's done something, he's very unlikely to back away from it. Um, so I, I think this is a good sign. Yeah. Well, you know, on that good note, uh, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And Beth, thank you so much for doing the show with me today. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, folks, if you enjoy the politics, guys, it's a good bet that you'll really like Pantsuit Politics, too. You can find them at PantsuitPoliticsShow.com and on iTunes and on Stitcher. And of course, just like us, they're also on Twitter and Facebook, and they are well worth following there. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or questions for Ask the Politics Guys, we'd love to hear from you. Our email, mail at politicsguys.com, and our Facebook page where we post stuff throughout the week, facebook.com slash politicsguys, and we are also on Twitter at politicsguys. We'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use, and sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps out a lot. And if you'd like to help the show out financially, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on our website. And if you enjoy the show, you should definitely check out the Politics Guys weekly newsletter. You can take a look at previous newsletters and sign up to have it delivered to your email inbox on our website, politicsguys.com. The Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.